the Mason-Dixon. This is the Week in Review at the Abbeville Institute. Here is your host, Brian McClanahan. Welcome back to the Week in Review at the Abbeville Institute. This is your host, Brian McClanahan, and this is episode 141, covering the week of October 8th through October 12th, 2018. Glad to have you back on the program. Glad to be here. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Abbeville Institute. You can like our Facebook page at Abbeville Institute, and you can subscribe to our YouTube page at Abbeville Institute. Also remember, our social media accounts work best when you share our material, so if you do like the stuff we put out there, please share it around with your friends with the new algorithms and other things. It's hard for us to get our material out there, so please do share our material. Also want to remind you to download our app. You can go to your favorite app store, look for Abbeville Institute, you can get the Abbeville Institute on the go. It is free. You've got this podcast, all of our lectures, um, your access to the website through the application, so it is a great tool. It is 100% free. You're going to want to get it. So go out and get our free app. It's an amazing way to keep up with the Institute on the go. Also want to remind you that we have our conference coming up uh, November 10th, 2018. It's down to the last minute to get the best rates on hotels. So if you want to stay in Dallas for our conference on November 10th, uh, go on out to our website, Get the information there. It is on uh, the revival of nullification or state nullification and secession. Um, and it's a, an interesting look. One of, one of these speakers we're going to have is um, the leader of the Cal Exit Group. And it's a discussion of red and blue states working together uh, for this common goal of uh, agreeable government. And so we see how vitriolic government is. And in fact, Next week's material for the website is covering that topic. So I don't want to steal my thunder for that, but make sure you're signing up for this conference. It is going to be a fantastic time. Uh, lots of great speakers. You'll meet a lot of like-minded people. So going out to abbevilleinstitute.org, middle of the page, you have the section that says you're invited. Sign up for the conference. Uh, time is running out. October 18th is the deadline to get the discounted hotel rate. So you're going to want to do that. And that is coming up. Uh, next week. This is actually this Thursday coming up, so you're going to want to get that before it runs out. All right, all of that said, let's talk about the week in review at the Abbeville Institute. Um, we had some good stuff this week, and it's a couple of different themes. Um, in fact, there's basically three themes that I want to talk about. Uh, two two pieces go together twice, and then we have a, our book reviews on something different. Uh, but these are interesting Southern themes, uh, nevertheless. And I want to start with the piece on Monday and the corresponding piece on Wednesday. The piece on Monday written by Paul Yarbrough, the piece on Wednesday written by yours truly. And it has to do with the founding generation. Of course, we've seen in the last, gosh, month with the Brett Kavanaugh fiasco, um, and we're going to talk a lot about this again next week, but with the Brett Kavanaugh fiasco and a lot of discussion about the role of the Supreme Court. Um, what kind of role should it have in modern society? Is it, uh, is it supposed to be the final arbiter when it comes to every constitutional question under the sun? And should we want that type of role for the Supreme Court? You know, people got very wrapped up in this debate over Kavanaugh, and you, you really started seeing clear you know, battle lines being drawn, you know, good guys and bad guys, depending on what side you're on. And the... the reason for that, the the disease that creates that symptom, is nationalism. And that's something that the Institute has always been talking about. It's, It's nationalism. And if you go back and look at what the founding generation designed with the Constitution, and and not just that, 
the general government's design, which was a federal republic, you find that the founding generation understood very clearly that there were going to be sharp political divides. And these sharp political divides were going to take place as they understood it because of culture. And so what we see in America now are sharply divided lines over culture. Now, you could make a case that Americans in 1788, when the Constitution was ratified, even though that there were sharp cultural divide, divides between culture and sections, um, that Americans are much more divided today than they were back then. Because at least at that time, everyone was a Christian, for the most part. I mean, they, they had these fundamental beliefs that came down to Christianity. I mean, they, they, they had... Uh, at core, those those beliefs, um, and they were all of primarily at least the dominant cultures of the British folkways. Now that's all gone. Uh, you have half the population doesn't even believe in Christianity anymore. Um, you've got massive numbers of immigrants, of course, bringing in their own cultural flavor, and so the Anglo-American tradition is wearing down in America, and it's creating a very divided electorate. And so the question is, do we want to put all of our eggs in one basket in a central authority that has very little representation? I mean, really, I mean, when, when the left likes to talk about the center as anti-democratic, well, it is. But also part of that is because of the functional design of it and that you can't have a real representative ratio anymore because we have too many people. So if you have a national government, which is what they all want because they want to press everything from the top down, well, then you create a situation where... Uh, if you have the current representative ratio, you really don't have any. It doesn't matter if you vote or not. So, do we want that kind of government now that our, you know, if if, the, if you're a conservative, your side's winning, you're you're just yeah, you kick their butts, just, just beat them down. Of course, if the other side's winning, then it's then they're trying to beat down the conservatives. I mean, this is how people look at the national government, and it was never designed to be that way. And so, the piece on Monday by Paul Yarbrough, Paul Yarbrough gets into this. Should we even really be worried about Brett Kavanaugh. I mean, if we had a real government, the way the founding generation designed it, Brett Kavanaugh would just be somebody on the court. I mean, think about how many times you have a local election for a local judge and nobody really pays much attention. That should that should actually be the, the reverse. Everyone should be paying attention to that local judge and no one should really be paying attention to what happens in, in, the, in the federal city. Because the federal court system was never supposed to be as powerful as it is. We weren't supposed to have a situation where we have uh, federal judges legislating from the bench. The real catch, of course, was always, could these federal judges knock down state laws? And uh, as John Marshall even argued, um, that was not going to happen. Um, the only way they could even closely get to that is if the law in question violated Article 1, Section 10, meaning that it took a national interest the state was taking, like, for example, if it, if it had a standing army, if it, was, if it was printing paper money. I mean, these are issues that would fall under Article 1, Section 10. Nothing else. Nothing else. And so uh, this is the problem. In fact, the, the, the idea that this general government would have a negative over state law would have destroyed the entire Constitution. John Rutledge of South Carolina, and I, and I mentioned John Rutledge in the piece I, I wrote on Wednesday, said that if there was a federal negative over state law, that alone ought to, quote, damn the Constitution. It ought to damn it. And to a man, North and South, in that period of time, the founding generation did not want a negative over state law. There were some that did. I mean, of course there were some that did, but 
Most of the founding generation, the majority, did not want a federal negative over state law because the states were supposed to handle the internal police and internal affairs, and that basically covered everything that wasn't mentioned in the Constitution, which is very little. The only things that are mentioned in the Constitution essentially are commerce and defense. And so the piece that I wrote on Wednesday, you know, what happens if we had actually listened to the Southern founders? And I'm not talking about the anti-federalists. I'm talking about the friends of the Constitution, those individuals who sold the document to the states, People like John Rutledge, James I. Rideau, later became a Supreme Court Justice, uh, William Richardson Davey, who was instrumental in the formation of the University of North Carolina. What if we listen to these people, even James Madison? What if we listened to the Southern founders when they started talking about what the Constitution was supposed to do and how far we've come from what they said it's supposed to do? They all argued that the Constitution would not abuse its authority because its powers were limited. They were circumscribed by the document itself. And generally, the people in the South believed it enough to ratify the Constitution. Now, of course, there were the naysayers. There were the Patrick Henrys who said, no, nah, I, don't, I don't think so. That's, that's, this is not going to happen. Uh, we're, we're going into a direction that's going to destroy this federal republic. And, of course, he was right. But the Constitution we should follow was the one that the friends of the document said would be put in place uh, should the Constitution be, <clears throat> be ratified. And of course, because it is a written document, because it is amendable, that Constitution is still in effect. The one that was ratified is the one that we still should be following, not the one that we create out of thin air, that the judicial branch creates out of thin air when it decides to do things that were never intended, like incorporate the Bill of Rights to the 14th Amendment. So my point in the piece on Wednesday was to say, you know, we should go back to those friends of the Constitution. In fact, I, um, I have my uh, course on that now at my McClanahan Academy where I get into that. And you go to McClanahanAcademy.com, there's a course on the Constitution. It's an originalist course. The idea is to take the Constitution, describe what the founding generation said about the, the document, also look at the Confederate Constitution, the Articles of Confederation, and... Um, the state constitutions, it's a complete comprehensive American constitutions class. And it's based on originalism. This idea that the Southern founders, and not just the Southern founders, I mean the Northern founders too, people like Roger Sherman of Connecticut, um, who, who was saying, you know, the, the Constitution only has limited powers. Uh, we should listen to them too. In fact, James I. Riedel had the he had, had a great statement when, when he said, look, the, the, if, if the general government passes a law that's unconstitutional, it's void. You don't have to follow it. You don't have to follow an unconstitutional law. It's void. Now, how often would you hear that today? If you said that, you'd be called some crazy right-winger out there just spewing nonsense. You're, you're preaching lawlessness. This is what James I. Riedel, one of the friends of the Constitution, said about the document. So, we need to listen to those Southern founders. You know, remember, Southern history is not just four years. Southern history is 400 years. And those Southern founders are important. When, when, when the Southern states seceded in 1860 and 61, they were looking back to those people and saying, these, this is our patrimony. These, these are our people. We're just doing what they did in 1776. So it's okay to look back to 1861 to 65 and, and say, yeah, those are our people too. But so are the people... In 1776, those are also your people. So were the people on the frontier before that. So were the people in Jamestown. Those are your people too. Those are Southerners as well. And so Southern history is, is a long process. It's also the people that followed 
the war and the postbellum period, the New South and, and uh, you know, that period of time, the modern South. Those are still your people too. And good and bad, those are, those are Southern people. And so we have to start looking at the South in, in the long perspective and not just a four-year period. If we really want to uh, understand what's true and valuable in the Southern tradition, and part of that is, of course, being in favor of that original Constitution, the Friends of the Document. Um, the Confederate Constitution simply, ma simply made improvements on that original document. Um, and I think that's something we have to understand. Uh, the improvements that were made were great improvements. I mean, if you, if, you, if you understand the Confederate Constitution, those improvements were beneficial. So um, I like talking about the Southern founders. I think it's something we need to do more of. And, of course, the Brett Kavanaugh fiasco brings to, brings to the fore the Supreme Court and the importance of the court and whether it is should be as important as it is or how much we should follow the court uh, or how much we should put our, our faith in the court. The court can change its mind. I mean, that, that's the thing about the court. Even if, for, for example, if you're, again, if you're a conservative and you, you think the court's going to move right and it's going to do some things, guess what? In 20 years, it could change its mind. 30 years, it could change its mind. It, it can always do that. So that's why the answer is never the court. The answer is always the states. The answer is always originalism. The answer is always uh, a, a def the states defending a real tangible thing, which is, which is culture. And it doesn't matter whether you're talking north or south. Northerners are starting to rediscover states' rights too. And and the fact is, they're they're saying, "Oops, maybe we maybe we shouldn't have abandoned this. Maybe we shouldn't have been, uh, you know, so uh, willing to smack these things down." Because when they controlled the general government, they they were fine with smacking down state powers and state authority. But now that they're not in power, they're starting to, to think, "Well, maybe we should just secede. Maybe we should nullify. Maybe we should do these things that we've accused the South of doing for years that are illegal, treason." But now. Lefties are starting to talk about these things, and rightfully so. We'd have a lot more peaceful political situation if we all just believed in a little bit of decentralization. If we all didn't care what happened in every other state in the Union. Uh, it's okay to, you know, for example, we have a bad hurricane to want to help people out in that area. We have a bad earthquake out in California to want to help people out out there. Do these kind of things. But to determine what happens in those states and the internal police, that's for those people to decide. That's their state. It's their community. We'd be a lot better off with that. All right, so those are a couple of interesting pieces. Um, I had fun writing the piece on Wednesday, and hopefully you'll read it. Um, now, let me talk about Jackson because that that's more in line with the founders than the last couple of pieces of the week, which have to do... Well, I mean, the Jackson piece kind of bridges into the piece on Thursday, which is this idea of, you know, old the poor whites of the Old South. So let me talk about those two together, because they do kind of fit. Um, so on, on Tuesday, we ran a, a piece by Dave Benner on a new book out from Regnery History in defense of Andrew Jackson. It's written by Brad Berzer, who teaches at Hillsdale College. Uh, Brad works with American Conservative Magazine now. Um and Brad's a nice guy. He's, he's a libertarian. Um, and he wrote this book, which in some ways, you know, libertarians are very hard on Andrew Jackson. Um, so to write a book in defense of Andrew Jackson is courageous, if you're a libertarian, because oftentimes you're told that Jackson's just a mean guy, 
Um, he is a, first of all, the, the charge that immediately comes up, well, he's a racist, he's an Indian hater. And, I, and Brad gives it back to these people very nicely in this book. Um, in fact, he, he portrays Jackson as not much of an Indian hater at all, uh, that Jackson had adopted an, a, an American Indian boy and, and uh, tried to get him through to college and you know, really tried to take care of that, of that young man. And so it wasn't necessarily an Indian hater. Jackson looked at the tribes as disrupting uh, the frontier experience as being anti-Republican. And so the tribes had to be dealt with. And of course, Jackson's tactics at times were, were, could be heavy-handed. But just about anyone who went out and fought in the frontier uh, was going to do that. The frontier warfare, people, people don't realize. I mean, we talk about the warfare of World War I and II and how brutal it was. And we talk about the warfare of the, of the war in, in the 1860s and how brutal that could be. We don't often talk about the warfare on the frontier, which was, in my mind, some of the most brutal warfare that, that Americans ever confronted. Um, you know, we, we look at what happened in Vietnam and some of the things that happened there and uh, some of the, the uh, terrible situations that American soldiers were faced with there. And same thing in the Pacific Theater in World War II. The, the men on the frontier faced these type of, of uh, dangers on a regular basis as well. And not just the men, also the women. Uh, you know, in, in, uh, in 1787, when uh, Arthur St. Clair was defeated, on the Pennsylvania frontier, and, and the uh, tribes there thoroughly routed his army. Um, one of the things that is not often brought up is the fact that the women who followed the camp, uh, who there, were, there was a large number of camp followers that were women, were completely tortured and, and uh, executed by these Indians. And that's because St. Clair's men ran from the battlefield. The only people that were left were the women, and the tribes slaughtered these women, horribly abused them before they did. Um, so this is this is nasty stuff, and uh, even in, during the American War for Independence, warfare on the frontier was extremely violent. And so we, this is a violent time. It's a violent time uh, if you're on the frontier. And I think Michael Martin's piece on on Thursday, the Poor Whites of the Old South, really gets into that how violent the frontier actually was. But that violence created a strong Republican streak of independence. Um, that Jackson really personified. Um, so I, I'm very critical of Jackson's presidency, at least in his dealing with the people of South Carolina during the nullification crisis. And uh, Jackson should not get any kind of uh, reprieve for, the, for his actions there. Uh, when, particularly when you look at what South Carolina was saying, that this tariff is, is unconstitutional, um, in an unconstitutional law's void. They had a, an original understanding of, of the Federal Republic. Jackson, though, wanted to strengthen the power of the executive branch. I mean, he, he really wants to form uh, the idea that the executive branch is independent, needs to have a strong position. You know, he pushes the force bill. Um, and you could make a constitutional case that Jackson had the authority to do this. You could also make a case that Jackson did not have the authority to do this based on the fact that the people of South Carolina, the legislature and executive, did not call for the introduction of troops into South Carolina, which, of course, is part of Article 4, that you have to have permission from the state to send in the troops. Now, Jackson has to take an oath to enforce the laws. So you had this tariff that needed to be enforced. I mean, you get these very vague and ambiguous areas of the Constitution. So Jackson, I think, did establish the blueprint for Abraham Lincoln in the 1860s. Without question, of course, Jackson was being influenced by what George Washington did during the Whiskey Rebellion.
it's interesting that the three presidents in the in the 19th century who did the most, or 18th and 19th century, who did the most to uh, strengthen executive police powers were three Southerners, Washington, Jackson, and Lincoln. I mean, Lincoln was born in Kentucky, uh, and he was accurately called a Southerner, even in the 1860s. So uh, it's, it's amazing how that works, and... You know, the South is not monolithic. You had, you had an ardent nationalist in the South, John Marshall, one of the men most responsible for bringing about uh, this strong national government. John Marshall, a Southerner. Hugo Black, who disastrously came up with incorporation, essentially, is from Alabama. So Southerners are doing a lot to undermine the original Federal Republic as well, and I think that's unfortunate. A lot of that is because of a lack of education on the part of Americans that you know, we think these things are fine, when in reality they're not. Um, so Jackson was a product of his people and his place. He was a frontiersman. Uh, and he is brought up, in fact, I think, in, in Michael Martin's piece, and how Jackson was well-respected because he was such a hard-nosed brawler. I mean, Jackson, um, if anything else, Jackson was a man that you did not tussle with. Um I think Brad Berzer does a nice job in, in showing his consistency and the fact that Jackson was always principled. Now, again, uh, you could make a case that maybe not so much at times, um, but I'll, I'll even go with what Clyde Wilson said about um, Andrew Jackson at one point. Of course, Clyde, working with the Calhoun papers for a long period of time, had a lot of uh, contact with Jackson's papers and Jackson himself in that way. And he said, you know, Jackson was a great general, but a bad president. And I think that's what really sticks for me, with Andrew Jackson, I've written uh, a chapter on Andrew Jackson in my Pig to Real American Heroes, where I did call him an American hero. And I've also written a chapter on Jackson in my Nine Presidents Who Screwed Up America, and I have Jackson there. So it really does depend on which Jackson you're talking about. Are you talking about Jackson pre-president, or are you talking about Jackson during the presidency? There's two Jacksons to discuss. Brad says that Jackson is conservative the whole time, and I think there is some semblance of truth to that. Jackson was consistent. Um, Jackson did believe in a Republican system. One of the things that he did not like was a strong standing army. He thought that the militia was necessary and the only military arm needed to defend the United States. That's something you, uh, you don't often hear about Andrew Jackson. Of course, we all know about the bank bill. He did something very illegal there in withdrawing the deposits from the Bank of the United States uh, illegally, and of course that helped lead to the one of the crashes, the Panic of 1837. Um, Jackson's actions with the force bill and the tariff are not to be admired. And so we actually had a piece on the website, it's one of the most viewed pieces of all time, it's uh, The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly of Andrew Jackson, written by James Rutledge uh, Roche. It's, it's uh, one of those pieces that, uh, I mean, it's been, it's been read, it gets read a lot, because people go out and do research for Andrew Jackson, it comes up. And so uh, it's one of those pieces that drives a lot of traffic to the website. And it, Roche gets into what he thinks about Andrew Jackson, namely that Jackson wasn't a very good guy. So that part about Andrew Jackson is, is interesting. But let's talk about the last couple of articles for the week. Um, and that's the poor whites of the Old South and remembering, you know, old time, old time ways or something like that. What was the title of that piece? It's by Carrie... Lindsay, it's Southern Memories of the Good Old Days, excuse me, Southern Memories of the Good Old Days. 
What I like about this piece, what I like about these pieces working together, and also working with Andrew Jackson, is it shows that the South, again, is not monolithic. That the South is not just a bunch of moonlight and magnolias. That the South actually had rough-hewn frontier people that were, I mean, these people were tough. They were, they were uh, you know, rough around the edges. And you had stories that showed that. For example, A.B. Longstreet's The Fight, which um, I'm glad that uh, Michael Martin talked about in his, uh, in his book, or in his piece, I should say. Uh, that's one of those pieces, and I remember reading it for the first time in graduate school, in fact, in a Clyde Wilson reading seminar. It's one of those pieces that you read it and you say, wow, I mean, that's, is that, is that really true? Is this how these people acted on the frontier? And yeah, I mean, one of the things I point out to my class all the time is professional wrestling is often, it's kind of based on this very, you know, kind of Celtic frontiersman uh, society in that you have the manager who represents the wrestler and they talk a lot of trash and then the, the wrestlers do that. And this is exactly what would happen in the fight scenario. And so the fight shows how brutal this society could actually be. But at the end of the day, these people just, you know, clapped, shook hands and, and went back to uh, living their lives. Uh, the piece on Friday, Southern Memories of the Good Old Days, I think I like about this particular piece, works well with Michael Martin. I like the piece works well with Andrew Jackson because those things can go together. Now, one of the things that uh, you know we get out of this uh, discussion of poor whites and, and, and Southern whites, and you look at the way they're demonized, and you look at the way they're described, the question is, how do they fit into Southern culture? If Southern culture to many people is just moonlight and magnolias, how do these people, these poor people, these forgotten people think about the South? Well, many of them still identify with the South. And they still admire the South, even though they're in this forgotten kind of, you know, outcast people. In fact, I often see, you know, some of the people that are the most pro-Southern are people that don't have anything. They're people that you would think that, uh, that why would these people be proud of being from the South? But uh, as, as uh, Michael Martin points out, I mean, it was that pride, that individualism, that stubborn pride that you find in these frontier people. And I mean, you could say that this was not just in the South. It was also um, in, in places like the frontier of Pennsylvania or the frontier of New York. You would still have that. Read James Fenimore Cooper. You get that idea. But certainly uh, in the South, you had that, as these people had nothing. I mean, they slept on a dirt floor. Read David, ha David Hackett Fisher and uh, how he describes the Celtic peoples on the frontier and the violence and, and the things that would really turn your stomach. I mean, there were some awful things. But it was that stubborn pride that uh, they were Republican. They were America. And these are, these are the people that are called deplorables now. Uh, and there's so much a part of what the South was, I mean, again, not a monolithic South, but uh, a, a very important part in that, in that piece by Carrie Lindsay in getting into all the different parts of, of being grown up on a farm. And, and it was hard. I mean, it's hard work, but yet it's, it's still something that resonates with him. He was on a vacation. He saw some, sh some uh, sugar and, uh, you know, he found out or some syrup and he found out it was actually made out of the United States, but it brought him back to those cane cutting days and uh, those uh, sausage uh, stuffing days on the farm, and uh, how much he really enjoyed that, 
how much he enjoyed growing up on that farm and growing up poor. And um, you know, one thing you can say that, and the and the Kennedys have done a nice job with this. The Kennedy brothers, and of course, um, uh, Philip Lee and his Southern Reconstruction, the Kennedy brothers, and punished with poverty, is that the South did pay penance for that war. I mean, they had to pay reparations. They were punished with the poverty of the post-war period. And a lot of them, I mean, never recovered. And the South was always the economic colony of the North. Even when Southerners were trying to adapt and, and, and have some type of economy that was very much more in line with what they had in the North, it was never the same. They had their own views on labor and other things. But the South was still the economic colony of the North, and perhaps it always was. The last question, I mean, you get out of this is, and, and something we'll talk about a little bit next week too in a piece on agrarianism is, you know, does agrarianism create culture? When you start getting the inf- the push for this much more northern-styled economy, what that does to southern culture. Uh, now you have places where you used to have farms. You've got uh, banking and insurance industries as a dominant. Um, and so you have much more mobility among people. You start getting less and less of an inclination to, to be from a place that that job can take you anywhere. Uh, and you're not really from anywhere. You adopt kind of this mainstream American culture. And I think that's something that we try to do with this particular podcast and with the Institute is try to keep people focused on the fact, again, that 400-year Southern history. Southern history is rich. Southern culture is rich. And being from somewhere is very important. It's something that we often forget in this very this view of a monolithic American culture. Um, but being from somewhere is important. Where you're from says as much about who you are as how much money you make. Uh, I mean, somebody can make a lot of money, but if they're from somewhere, they're still going to act like they're from that place. And so, you know, the, the dislocation that we have, uh, there was a study done not long ago about people moving kids around and how they really needed to be grounded somewhere uh, to try to keep, it, it helps them develop better. They're from a place. They're not just people of the world, so to speak, because then they just kind of absorb whatever culture they get. But when you're from a place and from a people, that means something. So I like these pieces that we had on on uh, uh, Thursday and Friday for that particular reason. And of course, they work well with Andrew Jackson, and he was from and Jackson was who he was because where he's from, he was from the frontier. And of course, that that idea of Southern history is bigger. You can attach 20th century Southern history, post-war history with the old South and the poor whites there. And of course, Jackson can help bridge those. And you have this, uh, you have modern Southern history being brought up again because of the Southern founders uh, and, and how the Southern founding looked at the Constitution, Supreme Court, and these type of things. So all of this works together. You can't get around it. It's 400 years of history, and it's, it's just so rich, and it's something that we should constantly try to be reminded of. Uh, and I hope that you get that out of this podcast. Until next time. Good day. Good day.